I grew up in the Great Plains state of Nebraska, right on the edge of a region called the Sandhills. It's where the corn and bean fields of the eastern part of the state begin to turn into stunningly vast, remote cattle pastures. Trees don't grow abundantly in this part of the state, but wild grasses cover the sandy soil of the rolling hills here, hence the name Sandhills. Combined with the skies torn wide open above, it paints a canvas of a desolate beauty I've never seen anywhere else in the world. It's the middle of Middle America, quite literally. It's almost exactly the same distance to the east and west coasts, which means I never saw the ocean until I was 20 years old. Growing up, we did all the cliche things small towns pride themselves on. We rode our bikes everywhere without helmets or adult supervision. The streetlights were our curfew, and there was a church gathering, potluck, or community celebration of some sort nearly every weekend. I'm in my mid-30s now, and I've seen the ocean quite a few more times since I was 20. I've lived outside of the United States for a few stretches, went through a few friend groups due to relocating, and met a lot of people who don't look, talk, or think like me. And I guess this is cliche to say too, but the more I ventured outside of middle America, the more I realized I didn't know anything about the world. But the flip side of that is also true. It seems almost everyone from outside of middle America knows next to nothing about middle America. And so the world I grew up in and the world I grew into are at odds with one another. But to take it full circle again, I don't entirely understand why. It's a problem that's bugged me for years now. It feels like I have one foot in two different worlds. And most times I feel like I can comfortably navigate between them, but not always. And so it's frustrating for me when people from these two worlds so blatantly misunderstand each other. Or maybe it's not that they misunderstand each other, it's that they're so certain that they understand each other when they so clearly don't. To help me out with this, I sat down with Carson Vaughn, a freelance writer and author and old friend. Carson's book, Zoo Nebraska, paints a picture of the struggles and the endurance of rural America and gives us a window into the complexity of life in the, quote, middle of nowhere. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy it. All right, today I'm speaking with Carson Vaughn. He's a freelance journalist whose work has been featured all over the place, the New York Times, the New Yorker, Guardian, Pacific Standard Magazine, many, many other places. I'm sure I'm forgetting a lot of big names there. Um, he's also author of Zoo Nebraska, The Dismantling of an American Dream, which we will get into a little bit later. Carson, thank you so much for doing this with me. Absolutely, Drew. Thanks for having me on. And for sure. So if to start out, I guess, just give us a little of your background, kind of the broad strokes of what you do, uh, what you write about, maybe a little bit about how you came to write about what you write about. Yeah, sure. Well, uh, I am from the same small town in central Nebraska that you are from, that's, Drew, that's Broken right. Bow. And um, I guess, I don't know, I usually sort of pinpoint like my interest in writing as coming from like, you know, like freshman or sophomore year of high school in Broken Bow when I started writing for just the high school newspaper. Um, mm-hmm. And it was kind of the first thing growing up that I felt like I was maybe better than other people at. You know, sure, I wasn't sure. like much of an athlete. I played music, but wasn't good at that either, really. But writing, I seemed to have sort of a leg up on some of my peers. So it made me feel like maybe there was some potential there. Um, so I followed that through to college and studied journalism and English and then went off to grad school and got a fine arts degree in creative nonfiction writing. And all that just kind of led up to... Um, the career I have now, which is a full-time freelance writer and author. And um, I tend to focus most of my writing uh, back home. I live in Chicago now, but most of my work still focuses on either Nebraska specifically or sort of the Great Plains and American West um, in general. And 
you know, if you had told me back in high school that I would keep focusing on these places, I would have like laughed you out the door, <laughs> but I can't seem yeah. to get it out of me. So I just like keep returning to this place that I have a very love hate relationship to, but that I, I guess I'm in some weird ways obsessed with. Well, that's, and that's kind of, uh, I guess what I want to talk to you about today. Um, and I guess you had to step back full disclosure. We are from uh, the same place uh, we grew up together. I'm a couple of years older than you and you, your brother and I were really good friends. So I picked on you a lot when we were growing up and now that's right. My earliest memories of Drew Bernie are him uh, performing wrestling. Yes, on me doing funny voices. So. Illegal, yep, right. illegal headlocks actually Those weren't <laughs> legal, but you didn't know. So that's okay. I wouldn't know. Drew, yeah. <laughs> um, but no, I guess, yeah, my, my motivation for this conversation is really that um, every time I have a conversation with someone else about a rural America, about middle America, whatever you want to call it, if they're not from there, I always end up, you know, I have that same love hate relationship and I always end up defending rural middle America because, you know, I'm from there and I know it. And even though I don't agree with a lot of the, the worldviews that come from there or the, maybe the way they do things or this and that, I still kind of have this like really deep, uh, fond respect and love for the people and the places there. Um, and it seems to just cause so much kind of cognitive dissonance in the other person, you know, that they just can't wrap their head around that. How can you, how can you have this love hate relationship with a place like that? And how can you hold two opposing positions like that? You know, where you, you love a place, but you also kind of in another way, you know, reject it in a way. And so, yeah, I wanted to bring you in on this because I, I suspect you've thought a lot about this. Obviously you have, and you've had to, yeah. you've had to deal with it in a really tangible way, I guess. And how have you, how have you handled that? I guess. Well, I'm just thinking about, I mean, like the way you describe it is so close to how I feel most of the time. And I think when you're in that position, you end up feeling sort of like the outsider, whether you're home or away, you right, know, like right. you'll hang out with your friends in the city outside of Nebraska and you'll find yourself defending Nebraskans. But then when you're in Nebraska and the people you grew up around are, you know, negatively portraying people who don't live there anymore or live in the city or whatever, you end up defending the other side. Yeah. So you, you never really feel like you're um, at home, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, and, and, exactly. And you being a journalist too, I, you know, if you're going out and doing reporting or whatever it is in those areas, you're, even though you're from there, you're, you're seen as an outsider, I'm sure, you know? Yeah, and, totally. And I, and I, think it's, I think it's that sort of that tension um, that has led me to, to write about it so much. You know, I feel like I'm always trying to figure out why it is that I feel that need to defend, like where I come from. It's strange. Like both of my older brothers, Brian, who you grew up with and the oldest one after that, they both, um, left Nebraska right after high school and they don't have the same feelings about home, I guess that I do. And, you know, I've, I quiz my friends every now and then too. Like I've been developing a friendship with a dude here in Chicago, who's from Florida. And I always associate him with Florida, but I frankly asked him just the other day if he like cares or thinks about Florida at all anymore. He said, no, like Florida is not part of my identity. Right. And so here I am at 32 and I still feel like a Nebraskan through and through though. Sometimes I don't even know what that means. Yeah. That, that's a, that's a good point. And, um, I guess I, I stayed in Nebraska for a little, I, I guess 10 years after, after high school, I lived in Omaha and, uh, I, I definitely see that anybody who left right after that, 
um, doesn't quite have that same connection because, you know, those are important years are coming of age and everything like that. But from a more personal side, have you kind of always felt like you could go between those two worlds fairly easily? Like, um, I guess for me to give you a little context here, I always kind of felt this weird, that weird tension growing up as well. Um, whether if it was a feeling like I didn't belong or, um, you know, I didn't quite fit in, in certain places, but you know, it's so small and everybody knows everybody that you have to navigate that world just to, just to survive. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely did. And it's, it's weird. I feel like really lucky to have grown up in the like specific class that I did in Broken Bow. Yeah. I like have great memories of growing up in Broken Bow. I loved my classmates. I had a ton of good friends. Some of them are still good friends. Um, so it's not like I felt like some weird alienated outcast <laughs> growing up right. in Broken Bow or rural Nebraska. I loved it at the time. Um, but I give a lot of credit to my parents who have always been like pretty progressive individuals. And I think they saw the need. Um, raising three kids in rural Nebraska to expose us to a lot of stuff wow. as we were growing up, you know, so we traveled a lot when we were kids and they took us to the cities a lot. And I think they were intentionally trying to expose us to things that were not necessarily better, just different than rural Nebraska, you know? And so I did, I think by the time I was finishing up high school anyway, feel like I had, um, that I could like sort of balance between both worlds a little bit better than, maybe some other people who were so exclusive to Broken Bow? You know, it, it, a lot has probably changed in uh, the last several decades or whatever, uh, where, for instance, you know, your grandfather and my grandfather, we, uh, they were, they worked on things together. They did philanthropic endeavors together, nonprofit stuff together, and came from different sides of the political spectrum, but that just didn't, it didn't matter. And so I don't know, I, the, this whole outsider from within feeling I got, I don't know how new that is, but it's definitely shaped our right. perspective, I think, on the current current situation, right. culturally, politically, and so on. And I don't know if you feel the same way, but yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't know if it's that like our generation is better or worse off, but I do think the more time that I spend looking back on it, that like our grandparents' generation definitely felt that sense of community on a different level, I think, than we did, even though we were in the same town as our grandparents. You know, like right. I think community meant something different back then. And mm -hmm. I don't know if it's because they had served in wars together or they just had a bigger sense of like civic pride and duty at the time. I don't know what it was, but I don't think politics were playing the same role in their lives that it does to our generation. Right. Well, yeah, politics and culture in general, and you write about a lot of the culture um, from, you know, the, the, the Midwest and the West. Uh, one of the things I, I, I absolutely have to talk to you about is cowboy poetry. And I don't know if you're sick of talking about that. Yeah. Yet or not, but <laughs> no, I was just working on a story about it this morning. Are, so. you, are you still writing about it? That's yeah. awesome. That's great. Because yeah. I honestly don't know. I mean, I knew about cowboy poetry just growing up where I grew up, but I never, you know, paid it much attention. And then when you started writing about it, I was like, oh, this is a fascinating, fascinating world. And, you know, you've attended and reported on the National Cowboy Poetry Convention. Uh, well, first of all, how did you first get yeah. into that? Yeah, well, I should say first, Drew, that I'm glad there's at least one other person out there in the world who thinks this is a fascinating raving topic. fan. I'm, I want to go. I want to go to the, one of these conventions so bad now. Like, uh, man, I hope you will. I hope you will. <laughs> so, um, I got started on it because of Broken Bow. Actually, yep. my uh, second cousin there, R.P. Right. Smith, who I'm sure you know, 
um, he used to come to like our high school and do shows every now and then and do like community events. He's a cowboy poet. And I knew that growing up, but I don't think I realized or had any sort of sense that like he was performing this like folk genre that did have a history to it. I certainly didn't know that at the time. Um, but even on a more basic level, I didn't know that RP had like the following that he did. (laughs) And so in 2016, I pitched a story to the New Yorkers just saying exactly that, that I had kind of written off my uncle's art as a kid, but wanted to go give it another shot as an adult. And they took it. So I followed him out to Elko, Nevada, to the National Cowboy Poetry Gathering. And like, my God, it's hard to exaggerate how popular RP's shows were in Elko. I mean, he had people snaking out the door waiting for his autograph he was i mean his shows were a huge hit there and that's when i started looking into this whole genre a little more and i just keep running into like fascinating characters who haven't been written about and it's just the the whole world of it is pretty fascinating to me i don't i i would be the first to say that i don't love that much cowboy poetry (laughs) i think a lot of the poetry itself is pretty bad but the people doing it i'm really interested in right yeah and just that the whole, like I said, fascinating world behind it. And the way you, you just said where you can zoom in on one of the characters and kind of capture the whole culture around it in, in, in the individual characters like that. It's just, uh, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. And yeah, I mean, yes, the, the poetry, the quality of the poetry is, you know, it, it runs the whole gamut. There's some really good ones. Um, and I, RP is definitely one of them that I like too. And yeah, fun, yeah. funny enough, another, you know, small town connection. I'm pretty sure he was in the same class as my dad. So oh, yeah, funny. he went to high school funny. with my dad. So yeah, that's kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, yeah, I mean, you're right. It's, it definitely runs the gamut. Some of the poetry itself is horrible. Some of it I credit with getting me into poetry in general, uh-huh. you know, like I wasn't that big into poetry until I started like covering this community but cowboy poetry got me into like digging into poetry just in general, you know, it was sort of like my gateway to the wider world of poetry. So yeah. I, I owe it that too. And it definitely, it definitely could be, it's kind of an easier way to get into it for some people anyway. Uh, it, yeah. Definitely for somebody like me anyway, too. I also just think that they've developed this community within cowboy poetry that is all about telling their own story, you know? So even if right. the poem itself is bad, there's definitely something to be said about a whole like 10,000 people coming together to just share and listen to each other's stories. I think that's like, I can't think of anything really more healthy than that, you know? Right. Right. Well, and you, you know, that, and a lot of the pieces that you've written so far, anyway, somewhere in there, you usually mention that, you know, there's a lot of taboo subjects about these uh, or, or within these cultures, within these conventions and right. one of those being politics. And I think it's part of that is because of that community uh, people have kind of fought fiercely almost to, to build and they, you know, they come from all over the country and they want to be a part of something that's bigger than politics or bigger than whatever cultural divide they might see. Right. Um, right. So. Yeah. I mean, you put it really well. It does feel like this, you know, I go once a year now to Elko for this event and it feels like this week long hiatus every time I go where uh-huh. everybody, everybody, recognizes that there's so many different politics going on at this event, but they've all agreed that, Hey, we're here to tell our own personal stories through poetry and song. And we're not here to argue and debate. We're here for the opposite of that. And people do a really good job of mostly sticking to that. But I think it's also an illustration of the larger point, which is that this uh, kind of subculture 
of people who from middle America, mostly who you would think would just be this one monolithic culture is actually very diverse. And you kind of captured that in uh, one of your pieces in the guardian uh, called what happens when you put cowboys in a room to talk politics. Yeah. That, yeah. I, I really like that because you describe the perspective of each of these, I think there were five people. Um, yeah. And what struck me most was that, you know, again, you would think that all these, I think there were five white guys even too. And you would think they would be all pretty (laughs) homogeneously, you know, thinking the same things, but no, they weren't. They ran the whole gamut about, I think the the topic was climate change. That's right. And, you know, there was people who were staunch supporters of the science and people who were, you know, skeptics and everything in between, I guess. And so it kind of shows that there's not this monolithic culture, even within this tiny subgroup of kind of a weird quirky culture itself. Right, right. I mean, and that was definitely the goal. I mean, one of the things that surprised me so quickly after I started covering that world is, you know, from the outside, I thought, well, I'm going to go hang out with a bunch of conservative ranchers who also write bad poetry. (laughs) And I left finding out that like, this whole community was way more diverse than I was ever going to give it credit for. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just like, one of the things that really gets me like jazzed as a writer is just being able to like drill so far down that we start to find more universalities than differences, you know, and covering this world has kind of allowed me to do that. So do you actually think though, that something like cowboy poetry, is that a way for people of different views, you know, within that culture to come together? Do you think that can, anything like that, is there anything in your journalism, anything in your reporting that you would think that, you know, there's, there's these little subcultures like that that actually do play. Could they play a bigger role on the in the larger conversation? Um, uh, yeah, I mean that's a, it's a really tough question. I mean right. earlier, I think what would be beneficial to like the country as a whole, like a lesson they could take from the world of cowboy poetry, is just that idea of like listening more and uh. letting people tell their stories. I mean that's what. I keep using the word healthy, but I really think it is. I mean, like people show up to this thing from all parts of the country, from around the world. They sit in a room and they let people who have written their poetry recite it. And they're not there. It's not like an academic reading or a literary reading where people are there to like judge it and be critical of it and look for ways to say that it's not as good as Whitman or whatever, you know, like they're there just knowing that here's a guy who ranches in rural North Carolina or Texas or whatever. And he's going to tell you through story and song, what his year looks like, the ups and downs and, you know, everything in between. And I think just sitting there and listening and soaking all that in has helped me like as an observer of this whole event become a better listener and more patient with people of differing perspectives. And it doesn't mean that you're going to leave and all of a sudden think, Oh man, I am a Republican or I'm a Democrat or I, you know, appreciate this person, but it's just, you have a deeper understanding and a willingness to, you know, at least try to find common ground with people. It speaks to kind of the rural urban divide, but at the same time too, it kind of takes it down a little bit because, you know, you have these, yeah, these ranchers or these farmers who also have this kind of drive for a creative outlet, you know, that most people right. wouldn't wouldn't even consider, you know, they're like, no, they're just, you know, a bunch of, uh, you know, hicks or whatever, knuckle draggers from, you know, right. middle of nowhere. And that's not true at all. They, they, they need a way to express themselves and just like people everywhere do. And 
I don't know, maybe that's a little bit kumbaya, I guess, you know, sit around the campfire and well, Hey, we can all be friends. But I think it's, I, if nothing else, that's, that's the thing that I'm talking about is that even though if you don't agree with these people or don't like their poetry or anything like that, you can at least begin to understand them a little bit better because they do have these same drives and these same needs as everyone else. Oh, totally. And that's like the, I mean, I will be the first to admit that like every other day, I've been looking at cowboy poetry for like five years now, Drew, and like every other story that I write, I just think like, am I full of shit? Am I like looking into this too deeply? Do I actually disagree with everyone here? And do I hate cowboy poetry? (laughs) You know, like I flop back and forth between on the one hand, having those kumbaya moments thinking like, oh, this really does help. This is really breaking through. And then the next day I'll think like, yeah, but how can you afford to ignore politics? They're kind of like at the core of who we are as people, you know? Right. And so I have that internal like dialogue with myself all the time and it's it's back and forth. But I think at the end of the day, we can choose to write off people entirely that we don't agree with politically, or we can say, okay, some things are never going to change. I'm not going to change this person's opinion, but I can you know, I can do what I can to re- like to maintain that relationship, like not, not talking to them at all or turning them away does no good for humanity in any way. Whereas even if it's only once a year and I fly out to Elko and go have a great time with all these conservative rancher poets, that to me is putting out more like love and goodness in the world than the opposite. No, sure. Sure. And I mean, you, you, as a journalist, you probably are met with some skepticism and a little reserve there, I'm sure. But at the same time too, they don't run you out of town. You know, I mean, it's absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I think that's one, one thing I talk to people a lot of times, you know, and they find out I'm from, you know, very rural Nebraska um, or what I consider very rural Nebraska anyway. Right. Um, and they, you know, just their preconceptions they have of all of that. It's like, Oh my God, you know, you, it's not like you're living amongst, you know, just a bunch of uh, cross burning, uh, you know, crazy people. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. There, 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 there are, uh, there are problems there just like there are everywhere and, you know, they have their own way of dealing with it and you might not agree with that. But again, that just comes back to like, I, I, uh, it's, it's a very difficult thing to be uh, a very difficult position to be in when you have those conflicting views like that, where you're holding somebody in high regard and you love them and you respect them, but you also just, just absolutely disagree with them. And I, right. um, I don't know if I just live with it better than other people or if uh, I can't communicate it to other people and they, right. they don't understand me. I don't know. I think like maybe a, an apt comparison is like, you know, when you have a family member or an uncle or whatever that you know is politically very different than you, yeah. but you still love them because you know them better, right? Right. I mean, like it's as simple as that. It's harder for you to write them off because you have a history with them. And so like one thing I've noticed, especially in covering cowboy poetry is the first couple of years that I went there, I was reporting like exclusively on their poetry and their art. Right. And so I was asking deep questions along that one mode of thought. And I was really like building up a lot of respect for the people that I was interviewing and talking to. And then for a couple of years after that, I started trying to see how politics functioned in Elko. And that's when I started to like ask kind of harder questions about what they believed as people politically and religiously and spiritually and all that stuff. And I hit, you know, those checkpoints along the way where I thought, oh God, how can this person think that? But by that point in time, 
I already knew so much about their art and their poetry and where they were writing from that like it didn't make me suddenly agree with their politics, but it softened that person for me. You know, I still saw them as a human and not just the other side. Right. Right. And I guess that's, I, that's my question uh, overall is, is there a way through all of this to do that? And like you said, that's a hard question to answer. And I don't know. Yeah. I don't either, man. I, <laughs> that's my answer. I don't yeah, know. Drew. No, I know. Um, I know. It's, I don't know. It really is hard. I guess I am less, um, I don't want to say concern, but I guess I'm less focused anymore on like getting people to change sides than I am to just like listen and not discount entirely. You know, I just, I think the more time we spend around different people, the better. I think it's so easy in 2019 with the internet being what it is and our world population being as gigantic as it is to stay in our bubble. Right. And I think the more exposure we have to just different viewpoints, the better. Well, and I guess that like, I've been trying to understand that too over the last um, several years and I've kind of come to the same, same spot. And I think that's what I try to communicate to people is that like, I look, I'm not trying to change your mind. All I'm asking you to do is try to have a little bit more empathy or, or, or take somebody else's point of view a little bit more seriously right. in some way. Right. And, um, so that's, I mean, those are the conversations I've had. And again, they they always kind of wind up difficult. And I always feel frustrated because I can't quite communicate that. So uh, uh, of course what I did was I, you know, did my nerdy thing and I, I went and found refuge in books and stuff like that and tried to figure it out and be, right. you know, right. that kind of thing, which honestly didn't, I don't know if it, that helped very much, but kind of, kind of one example of that was, uh, uh, the book strangers in their own land. It was by Arlie Russell Rothschild. She's a, she's an anthropologist from UC Berkeley and went and did kind of an ethnography in a modern day ethnography in, um, Louisiana, kind of rural Louisiana, not like, backwater by you really but uh, yeah yeah you know, she went and did that and um i i it was very good ethnography i thought but a lot of these books come to at the end of the book you know and they they have all these prescriptions for how we should be thinking about this and i feel like they just they miss the mark you know what i mean yeah. and um I, yeah i mean that prescription part gets so difficult though you know like there's i don't think there ever is just like one answer for any of it sure. like any amount of prescription is a generalization, I think. Well, but I, I think a bigger uh, a bigger issue is that again, she was from you know West Coast UC Berkeley, you know, a, a very liberal um, school, not to mention city and state and everything like that. And she kind of went in here, and her prescriptions at the end did they uh, they address both sides of the the cultural and political spectrum and everything like that, but the, they were very it was just very obviously one-sided at, at the end of the yeah, day. Right. And right. so be, because she was an outsider um, and going in there and kind of treating it as a, you know, I am trying to, to, to see this with fresh eyes and everything like that. Um, I, I understand the conclusions she came to and I agree with a lot of the conclusions she came to, but I also know that a lot of people aren't going to listen to it. And right. I, I guess, so from your perspective as a journalist and as a writer, writing about these these places where i mean again you are uh, you're from there so it's not like you're an outsider in that regard but sometimes you probably still get treated like an outsider does that give you though uh any perspective 
how does that change your perspective when reporting on something or when writing about something where you're like, hey, look, can you go to people and be like, hey, look, I'm from here. I'm one of you. Do you think that gives you yeah. an edge? Do you think that helps? Do you think it hurts? Um, yeah, it's. I can't remember who I was talking to recently, but it was another writer friend who was from uh, a rural area, and we were ha- we were talking about how often we code switch, right? Yeah, so, yeah. like, if I'm covering what I consider sort of my community, I will like make sure at the beginning of the interview to say like, oh, well, you know, I'm from small town Nebraska, and like find that commonality with the subject. Um, but yeah. then if I'm interviewing somebody from the city, you know, I'll be like, oh yeah, well, I lived for a couple summers in New York or what, you know, like <laughs> it's just people loosen up when they feel like they're talking to somebody who has a similar history as they do. And so whatever you can do, I think as a journalist to find that, uh, is a smart technique. It just gets people to open up quicker, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. So when I can take advantage of that, I, I definitely do. You do. Well, and I, yeah. as you should, I think too. So that's, yeah. And yeah. it's not, I mean. I hope that doesn't sound like a sort of like schemey <laughs> sort of thing to do. I think it's just like a natural human, you know, well, technique. Okay. So that's, again, let's go back to that though, because uh, again, it was one of those things that you probably learned very young where you had to navigate different worlds. Um, because again, when, when you are growing up in a, a small town um, and you're, you're bound to run in, in a paradoxical way, you're bound to run into people who, you don't agree with more than you probably are in, yeah. in, in urban centers, just because of the bubbles you can make there. Um, totally. so you, you do, you learn, I think from a young age, or at least I did. And I think you did too. You learn from a, a young age to navigate those types of worlds. And yeah, it's, it's what you do to, I don't know about survive, but culturally survive anyway. Yeah. That's, that really, I mean, that's such a good point, Drew. I've thought about that a lot before too. Like, you know, I'm lucky that I still have friends from high school, but I look back on, how friendships work in a place that's that small. And it's not like when you're growing up in Broken Bow or another small town, you have like an abundance of options for friends, you know, that sounds horrible, but you don't, you kind of just start hanging around the people that are there via proximity. Right. And so you learn how to still have a good time with people that you might not naturally have anything in common with. Like my friends from college and grad school and beyond are so different from my high school friends. I love them all, but I think you're totally right when you are hanging around people that you don't have that much in common with for the first 18 years of your life, you learn how to adjust to that, you know, and still find a way to have a good time and relate to people. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's exactly my experience too. And, you know, I've, I've kind of, I've lived all over. I've even lived out of the country a little bit too. And right. I, I still go back and I still say, you know, people from back home, they're the salt of the earth, even though we don't see eye to eye on a lot of things. It's not, um, I just, at the end of the day, I, right. I think you're right, uh, about the whole spending time around people that aren't like you. Uh, that's gotta be part well, of the answer. I don't know if it's the whole answer, but it just has to be. Yeah, it's definitely not the whole answer. And I'll also be the first to admit, you know, like there are like having that attitude has helped me personally in my reporting in a lot of ways, but there are times as a journalist when I have to draw kind of a line on like how, how much of a different like perspective I can accept. And like an example of that for me is climate change. You know, like when I'm covering political stuff, like it's one thing to empathize with people and learn where they're coming from. But I, when it comes to like facts, (laughs) basic things like climate change, you know, I'm not going to say like, Oh, well, because I can respect for this, like respect where this person comes from or how they're thinking, I'm going to go ahead and legitimize their belief on climate change. I 
can't do that. <laughs> you know, that goes, I think, against both like journalistic norms and just like what I would feel comfortable with as a writer. So sometimes I have to find a way to say, here's this person, still be respectful to them. But what they're saying is like factually incorrect and you should not take that as the truth. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I thought the example you were going to give was on the, uh, the, the neo-Nazi Gerard Locke. But... <laughs> or of course that one too. Yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Didn't, I didn't plan on bringing that up necessarily, but yeah, that was a very interesting uh, piece you wrote about him, a neo-Nazi or one of the most prolific um, uh, propagandists who actually uh, like worldwide, like internationally known propagandists for for neo-Nazi movements around the world uh, lived in little Beatrice, Nebraska, which is uh, just crazy to think about. And yeah. so, yeah. yeah, it just goes well, to show your, right. your kind of like, uh, again, the, the breadth of, of, topics you've covered i was talking to a group uh not too long ago and they had also brought up that story and they asked about like what that interview was like um and it was i mean it that was like one of the interviews in my career that i have like stressed the most over but when i finished it all up i realized that and i don't know if this is true for every journalist or just the way like i tend to function as a journalist but like once you know, like what the goal is. And the goal of this story for me was to learn how a young kid from Milwaukee could grow up to be the world's largest supplier of neo-Nazi propaganda. That was the goal. Just tell a life and how it got to such an extreme. Yeah. I realized that was the goal. And then you're in reporter mode and the goal is the same as it is with every other profile you're writing, you know? And so I still had to be like, okay, Gary, you're a neo-Nazi. Now tell me about your parents, you know? And you start from the very beginning. And by the end, of course, it's not like I suddenly had a lot of sympathy for a man who's clearly a monster, but like there is that period of time during the interview itself when he could be anything in the world, but you're still in the same place of, okay, now here we go. Tell me. And you listen, you know? Yeah. Well, and one of the, one of the, uh, I guess kind of um, surprising things to me, or, or I imagined it was very surprising to you was when five minutes after your interview was over, you see him again and he takes you on a little nature walk, you know, like that was much more uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, we thought he was like hanging around Beatrice. So when we were driving to Fairbury to go see like where his actual house and stuff was, we thought we would be in the clear and he just walked right past me on the sidewalk and then wow. took me for a walk. Down nature trail. Yeah. Oh man. That, I, that's, I can't, I can't quite imagine, <laughs> but it was, yeah, definitely one of the more bizarre characters I've interviewed in my life. Um, well, I guess that's a good, uh, segue. I don't know if it's a segue or not, but another bizarre story, uh, zoo, Nebraska, your book. Yeah. Um, I really want to talk about that. I think, um, I think I told you this when, when I first started reading it, I ordered it, uh, so, you know, laid down in bed to read a couple of chapters and three o'clock in the morning, I'm three fourths away through the book and didn't realize yeah, that was time so nice to hear, man. no that's it's it's very well written um it tells a, just a crazy story i guess that unfolds over several decades really and um for for anybody who hasn't read it just real quick it's about the um it's about this little roadside zoo basically roadside attraction zoo in this little town called royal nebraska um that had some chimpanzees that um, were sadly, uh, had to be shot by the locals because they escaped and they were afraid of, uh, the, uh, the, the damage they could have done. Um, and you tell the whole story of how the zoo even got started and the, the main protagonist kind of, uh, Dick Haskins in this 
And uh, I guess tell me tell me a little bit first. Uh, tell tell how you came across this story because I think that's actually relevant here. And yeah. uh, what drew you into it to such an extent that you worked for so long to publish this book? Right. Um, well, so Royal, this town of sixty five people, is like three hours northeast of where you and I grew up in Broken Bow, and so even though this chimp escape happened in 2005 when I was still in high school and not that far away, somehow this was not on my radar growing up. I had never heard of Royal. I didn't know about the zoo, none of that until uh, 2009 when I was in between my junior and senior year of uh, undergrad at the university of Nebraska Lincoln. And I had just started dating uh, this girl, Melissa Doman, who is now my wife. And she took me back to her hometown of uh, Plainview, which is like 20 minutes away from Royal, uh, to visit her parents on the farm and stuff. And they were kind of touring me around that area. And they drove us through Royal. Um, and Mel just nonchalantly kind of pointed out the window and said, hey, that's where Ruben got shot. And I had no idea who Ruben was or that there was a shooting. And, you know, like Royal is so small that even as we were driving through it, I didn't know that we were in a community at all. Yeah. <laughs> so I was coming from square one and, you know, Mel had this crazy story about this small zoo that used to be there and these four chimps that got loose and how three out of the four were shot and killed. And I uh, just had so many questions. We got lucky because there was a sign on the chain link fence where the zoo used to be as we were driving through um, that was uh, that was advertising the public auction that was going to happen just the very next weekend. And so I decided I would go back the next weekend. I was looking for something that would serve as like my uh, senior thesis in undergrad. And so I thought maybe there's maybe I can sniff around and find a story at this defunct zoo. And so that was how it kind of all got started. That triggered the next 10 years of writing and reporting on this town of 65 people. And it's strange roadside attraction that got wildly out of control. I mean, you zoom in on this, this one story in, you know, this one tiny town and yet I, you still managed to capture like so many elements of the culture there, which I, I guess, I guess I'd like to, to contrast that with, you know, th these other kind of books that are prescriptive in their nature and they want to, you know, talk about the culture and is it right or is it wrong? And you, you have obviously taken a different kind of journalistic approach to that and just kind of, you tell the story. And uh, to me, it captures once again, kind of the complexity of uh, what's going on, that it's not a monolithic culture. You have somebody like right. Dick, Dick Haskins, who's the protagonist in this, who I could really identify with, you know, he was somebody who was like, man, I want, he wanted to be a primatologist and he wanted yeah. uh, he wanted to leave. He, he probably would have been a world famous primatologist had he had a slightly different upbringing, you know? Um, Absolutely. The, yeah. I mean, his career could have gone wildly different, you know? Yeah. And, and so I, I, I guess, uh, you know, books like these, Again, yeah, maybe maybe this is a little too kumbaya, but I'm like, I, I just find more value in books like these where they just they tell the story and give the complexity and the subtleties of these kind of far flung, flung places that um, aren't so far flung. They're right in our backyard. And, right. you know, all of a sudden you see the humanity in these places rather than just the stereotypes that you have in your mind. And, and I don't know if you if books like these do you if you think they have a a. a a place in the larger conversation or not, or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, I certainly hope they do. I mean, I actually didn't, I hadn't heard this quote until after the book was finished, so I can't credit it that way, but I 
really love that Hemingway quote where he says like, my job as a writer isn't to judge, but to understand. And I feel like the way that I approached telling the story of Royal and the zoo was that I didn't, especially being an outsider and not knowing anybody in town and coming at it so fresh and in some ways naive, you know, I didn't have any prior loyalties to anything. So my job, I felt like from the beginning was to just learn all I possibly could about everybody involved in this story and say exactly what I know, you know? And so what I ended up with was a book where I truly don't think there were any like real heroes or villains in zoo Nebraska. I think there was just a bunch of flawed humans trying their best. And ultimately I think, you know, a lot of people can relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's really no, I mean, there's, there's no resolution beyond, you know, yes, the, the chimpanzees tragically died and that the zoo closed down and all that. But I mean, the story was never really completely resolved, you know, which is very, very real. uh, Yeah, exactly. And that was honestly why um, it was hard, you know, finding a publisher in the beginning, everybody wants a happy ending, which, you know, I understand that for marketing purposes, but it just feels so like anathema to way our lives actually work. I mean, very rarely is there a nice, happy bow tie ending, you know, in the case of Royal and the case of Dick, they tried really hard. They had a grand vision. They shot for the moon and fell short of that. And, you know, then their lives carried on despite this, you know, dark chapter in their history. Yeah. No, it's, again, it's a, a very, um, I mean, a, a complex story with complex characters and I, I could feel it just because of, you know, I grew up in small town, Nebraska. So when the, the, the characters were coming through in the pages, I, I just, I knew who they were, you know, yeah, but I think yeah. you, I think even beside that, I don't, I don't think you would need to be there necessarily to, to have ever been there to, 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 to wrap your head around all that. So I, I mean, that was definitely one of the more like rewarding aspects of seeing the book like finally out in people's hands as I heard from a lot of people after the book um you know a ton who were not from Nebraska or rural areas at all who still said oh I know the Jensen family you know <laughs> there's one of those in my town or in my neighborhood or whatever yeah. city I live in like the characters themselves seem to be personalities that other people had at least come across in their lives and could relate to in some way right um, but sort of to your, I guess to your first question, Drew, about like if this can play a role, like a larger role than this. One of the things that I talked about a lot when the book first came out and I was doing like the book tour stuff was how I think like a much graver sin than being like negatively stereotyped is being stereotyped as like uh, simple or basic. And one thing that's always kind of annoyed me about Nebraska and the way Nebraskans tell our story is that I think sometimes we get so afraid of looking bad that we look simple. And I think that's a lot worse, you know? And so Mm. part of what I wanted to do with this book was to say like, yeah, clearly this isn't like a story that makes Nebraska or Royal or any of these people look good, but I think it does make us look more complex to say, Hey, here's this journalist who focused on this town and look at how much like life and humanity and nuanced complexity there is going on in this one town of 65 people. That to me would make me want to visit somewhere more than just thinking like, Oh yeah, it's flat, you know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so like, I think any story that we can tell positive or negative that just complicates the picture of who we are is a good thing. No, I, I 
absolutely agree with that. And I guess maybe that's, um, uh, maybe that should be my tagline from now on when I try to have conversations with people. Is that, you know, it's yours. It's just, it's fine. You don't agree with them, but they're more complex than you let on. And that's an easy yeah. message, easier message to sell, I think too. So yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, good stuff. Well, I think Carson, that's all I have for you anyway today, unless you have anything, any, any burning pieces of information you want to get off your chest too. still. I don't think so, man. I'm okay. in Zoo, Nebraska, cowboy poetry. That's basically my life. So. Yeah. Good. No, I, I keep doing what you're doing. If there's, um, if people want to find you, if you want them to find you, where, where could they find you? Yeah. Check out Carson Vaughn. That's V-A-U-G-H-A-N at, uh, gmail.com or just carsonvon.com. Okay, great. Awesome. I really appreciate it, Carson. And uh, I don't know, maybe I'll come back to you in a couple of years when we sort all this out on our own. Yeah, please do. This was a lot of fun, man. All right, great. If you like this episode, you can check out more at toolmillennials.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.